Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, where we left off last week on verse 11. As you're finding John chapter 10, I want to mention that tonight we are continuing our our regular habit of meeting together for a Sunday night service of singing hymns and praying together. But uh, again tonight, like I did last week when I spoke on complementarianism and the doctrine of of complementarianism and how men and women complement one another as men and women in their roles in the church and in the home and in society, I think. This evening, I'm also going to do another special teaching on baptism. And in particular, we'll cover cover just sort of briefly a refresher course on what we believe about baptism. But in particular, I want to zero in on helping parents think about uh, shepherding their younger children or middle school kids or teens towards a biblical understanding of baptism. And if you have a child that is professing faith in Jesus, when is it appropriate and how to shepherd that child's heart to prepare for baptism in a public profession of faith. So if you fit into that category as a parent, I'd love for you to come tonight. If you can't make it, we are going to tape it, um, record it. Taping is such an antiquated word, but you understand what I mean. I don't think, we're, I don't think we actually have an eight-track cassette player back there. But we're going to record it, and you can access it online. Can we have confidence that Jesus will lead us? Can he be trusted? I think that's the issue at hand in our text this morning. Whether it's a coach or a military leader, or a husband, the issue is trust. Are you worth being followed? Can I trust you? And I think our text this morning gives us some of the clearest, most assuring, most confidence-boosting words in all of the Bible about how we can trust Jesus, our good shepherd. Now, these words are dear, I'm sure, to those of us that are familiar with the Gospel of John. These are some of the first words that I read as a new believer after hearing the Gospel and coming to faith as a senior in high school in March of 1989. So, I want to draw out three points. I'm going to give them to you and read the text. And then we're going to work through them. I want to draw three reasons why Jesus can be trusted. Or three reasons from this passage, and there are many more, but three reasons why Jesus is the good shepherd. First, because he lays down his life for the sheep. I want you to notice that phrase as we read this text. Secondly, because he knows his sheep and they know him. He knows us and we know him. And thirdly, because he has one flock, and he is always, in fact, even now, adding to it. Those are the three reasons that I want to draw out as to why we can trust and follow the good shepherd, Jesus. 
Starting in verse 11, Jesus says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life, lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this glorious, famous passage in the middle of John chapter 10 where Jesus gives us one of his seven I am statements about being the good shepherd, may we see it, may we rest in it, may we fall more deeply in love with Jesus as a result of our time in his word, and for any that are here that are not yet following this good shepherd, Lord, would you make them, would you turn them from goats into sheep and give them eyes to believe and heart to trust in Jesus, and I pray this all in Jesus, the good shepherd's name, amen. The first reason why Jesus is the good shepherd is because he lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus tells us this five times in just these few verses in verses 11 through 18. In verse 11, he says, I lay my life down for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay my life down again for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And then twice in verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord, and I have authority to lay it down that I may take it up again. Five times in just these eight verses, Jesus tells us that he lays down his life for the sheep. And I want us to think carefully I want to give you a few sort of sub-reasons why this is important, that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. First, notice that he lays down his life, notice that qualification, for the sheep, specifically for the sheep. Jesus is unlike these hired hands in verses 12 and 13 who, who they're just sort of there to get a paycheck. I think he's probably referring to the, the poor shepherds from John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, these religious leaders of first century Jews that were really in it for their own sort of social status or their own righteousness and not to shepherd people to God. And, and so they're like hired hands. And we can sort of make that analogy today, people that are maybe just in ministry or in leadership for either their own 
esteem or their own acclaim or their own glory or their own financial gain. They're hired hands. They see a wolf coming and they immediately flee because they're not really in the battle. And we are in a spiritual battle. But notice that Jesus is saying he's not like these hired hands. He lays down his life for the sheep. I want you to pay attention to those three words, for the sheep. What's the significance of that qualification? Well, at a minimum, it clearly means that Jesus died not for the sins of all the world, those that just everybody that's ever born, because if that were the case, if Jesus' atonement, if his life laid down on the cross were atoning for the sins of everyone, then everyone would be in heaven. But we know that's not the case. The Bible is clear about the reality of eternal judgment and people that on the last day will be separated from him forever. So at a minimum, what Jesus is saying here is that his laying down of his life only applies, it's only effective, it only only is appropriated by the sheep. So this sort of nullifies universal salvation. And just think about, just think about even the way just in the media or in popular, popular culture that universal salvation is basically the sort of default assumption of our culture. When anybody famous dies, maybe an athlete or maybe a famous actor, and it's at the next award show or the next game, and somebody's giving tribute to that person's life, there's just this always this kind of requisite like, you know, I will see you again someday. And just this assumption that regardless of whether they gave any evidence of, in their life of faith in Christ, that they are in some sort of heaven with some sort of general notion of God, and that is simply not the case. Jesus gave his life for the sheep. So at a minimum, this clearly rules out a kind of universal redemption or salvation. But I believe it's actually hinting at more than that. I think it points to the particular nature the definitiveness, the actual accomplishment of Jesus' work. It's for the sheep. And who are the sheep? It is those, I think, that Jesus is speaking about all the way back in John 6, which we covered all the way back in September. I'm sure you remember that sermon. It is those that the Father gave him. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And then he says a few verses later in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And then eventually we'll get to John chapter 17, verse 1 and 2. Listen to this, these glorious words in this high priestly prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Listen to this, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. What I believe Jesus is hinting at here is that he has given his life for the sheep. And who are the sheep? They're those that the Father has given him, and they are those that trust in him in their life. Now, what effect should this have on us as we think about the gospel, as we think about the good news? Some instinctively, and I think wrongly, and unnecessarily take this, take this view of Jesus' particular work for a particular group of people that the Father has given them. They take it, 
somewhat negatively. They think somehow it, it limits God's mercy. But that's not what this doctrine is getting at here. No, the Bible is clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that he is rich in mercy. I think there will be many more multitudes in heaven someday. There's nothing limiting about the saving mercy of Christ. I think heaven will be full. There will be multitudes upon multitudes of people that are trusting in Christ. Many people that we think were very unlikely candidates will be in heaven with us, not because of their own works, but because of the righteousness of Christ, and they are part of his sheep. And that's encouraging. That's really encouraging. And one of the things that I think makes this as really positive and assuring news in regards to the gospel is that it means that what Jesus did on the cross actually accomplished our salvation. It didn't just make it possible for us if we activate it, which we can't activate because the Bible's really, really clear before we're saved, we're dead in our sins. If the gospel needed a dead sinner to actually push it across the, 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 the goal line, if, we, if, if Jesus drove 99 yards down the field for the game-winning touchdown, and then it was given to us to push the ball across the goal line, we would fumble every time. In fact, we wouldn't even get off on the snap because the Bible's clear, we are dead. And the gospel's good news because it's not saying that God has done all of this if you will just finish and finalize and close the deal. It is the good news that Jesus actually saves. He actually saves the people. And they are his sheep. And friends, again, human instinct takes this sometimes negatively, but I want to turn this around for you. I want to actually turn this around for you. I want you to see this, this doctrine of the definitiveness, of the particularness, of the certainty of Jesus' work on the cross and redemption and saving a particular group of people is actually really good news for your assurance. Because here's, here's, here's how I want to frame it for you. It's the ground of your safety and your certainty and your assurance. He died for the sheep. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, what makes a person part of the sheep? That they lived a relatively good life? No. That they're trusting in the only one who did, who is Jesus. So are you trusting in Christ? Is he your only hope before a holy God? Then he died for you. Do you despair of your own righteousness? Do you know that your only hope is that Christ would die for your sins? Then, friends, he died for you. Your assurance is not that you did something, but that Christ has done it all. That's the great good news and hope of the gospel. He did it. We didn't finish it. He finished it. So he died for the sheep. Secondly, notice here under this first heading is that he laid down his life for the sheep of his own accord and authority, of his own will and authority. So redemption is intentional. Nothing's happening to Jesus on the cross in a sense. It's intentional. Jesus is not being taken to the cross. He's setting his face like a flint for the cross, as the scriptures say. In fact, it's why he came. Mark chapter 10, verse 40, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So from the first day of the incarnation, the mission of the Son of God, in fact, in eternity past, he's the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. The mission of the Son of God, amongst many other things, is primarily to lay down his life willingly. Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So of his own will, of his own accord, intentionally, Jesus lays down his life. What's, what's a point of application here before we move on? If, think about this, friends, if the greatest evil and sin and tragedy and injustice ever committed, which was the the crucifixion of Jesus, the laying down of the life of the Son of God, if the greatest tragedy and justice ever committed was actually ordained by and part of and primary to God's plan, then we can rest assured that God is in complete control of and has some way planned for everything that happens to us with the promise of working it for our good. So when Jesus says of his own his own will, his own accord and authority, know that everything else is under that authority, even every detail and tragedy and despair of our lives. Thirdly, he doesn't just lay it down for the sheep of his own accord and authority, he lays it down to take it up again. He takes it up again. This is referencing the resurrection. Jesus doesn't just die, he rises again. He's not just the sacrifice for our sins, but he is the victor over them. And friends, everything in the New Testament, the whole trajectory, the whole logic of the gospel depends on this. Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he was delivered up for our trespasses. In other words, he took the penalty for our sin and he was raised for our justification. So he didn't stay dead. He died for our sins, but he rose again in victory over them to justify us, to give us his righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How did he do this? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So not just Jesus dying, but Jesus taking up his life again, vindicating his righteousness, vindicating his innocence, and proving his deity, his authority over sin, life, death, and the grave, taking it up again is what the whole gospel and our salvation rests upon. That's the whole logic of 1 Corinthians 15, which we won't take the time to read, but it's basically saying It's basically saying if Jesus did not physically get up from the dead, if there's not an empty tomb in Jerusalem right now, then let's just all go home. And Paul says that if that's the case, then we are more to be pitied than any other men. We are, we are, we are, we're, we're doing, what we're doing is ridiculous, basically, Paul says, if the resurrection is not true. Jesus lays down his life that he might take it up again. And then notice this before we move on to the second point. Just notice this fourth little sub-point here is is that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. And then look at verse 17. It says that the Father loves him because of it. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now that's interesting. I I spent... 
I spent a lot of time thinking about this verse this week, and I looked for an answer, and I didn't find anything very satisfying in all of the people that have written about this verse that I know about and trust. And so I'm not exactly sure all that's going on here. I don't think that it means that this is the only reason that the Father loves the Son. So notice what, what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the Father loves me because I have laid down my life for the sheep. I don't think that this means that the Father's love for the Son is merely and only conditional. Like a dad who only loves his son, who you know is a really good student or a really good musician or a really good athlete, you know, conditioned upon some performance of the child. That, that's not all that's going on there. Jesus is loved by the Father in a Trinitarian, eternal, timeless, no beginning, no end, relational way that is the mystery of mysteries, the Trinity. But in addition to that, there is this aspect of the Father's love for the Son that is at least in part because of what He has actually accomplished on the cross. The Father loves Jesus because he, think about this, the, if you're a Christian, this is just beautiful to think about. The Father loves the Son because he laid down his life for you. Just, just hunker down in that love. Put yourself in the middle of that. Why is this important? Because if you are united with Christ by faith and you are in Him, then the love that the Father has for the Son is the love that He has for you because you are in Christ. That means that it is impossible for the Father to love you any more or any less than He does right now. That means that no matter what your future holds, no matter the state of your sanctification, if you are in Christ, and that's the most common description of a Christian in the New Testament, to be in Christ, if you're in him, that means that the love that the Father has for the Son is yours, and that is a, friends, that is a wonderful place to be, to be loved by the Father because he loves the Son, because of what the Son has done for us. That means that no matter what happens to you in this life can compare with that love. That's, that's glorious. Okay, so first reason that Jesus can be trusted is because he lays down his life for the sheep. Secondly, because he knows his sheep and they know him. Look again at verse 14 of our text. He says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. So a few thoughts about how he knows his sheep and how we know him. First, friends, he knows everything about us, everything about us. Jeremiah the prophet, God said to him in the first few verses of Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. David writes in Psalm 139, he talks about there's no place that he can go. 
and, and the Lord isn't there with him. He can ascend to the heavens. He can d- go into the depths of the sea and the depths of Sheol, and the Lord is with him. And he says that you know my thoughts before one of them is even on my mind, before they're on my lips. You know them all together. He knows everything about us. Secondly, he knows every sin done by us and against us or to us. Remember, remember the story of the woman at the, Samarit- the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, and Jesus asks her to go get her husband, and she says, I'm not married. And he says, you know, you're right, actually, and the man that you're living with now isn't your husband, unlike your five or so previous husbands. Jesus knows everything about that woman, and he knows everything about us. He knows all of our sins, and he knows all of the sins that have been committed against us, and he still loves us. Thirdly, he knows every temptation that we will face. In fact, he's faced them himself. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4 are glorious passages. Mark those down and read them later. It says that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest, and he has become like us in every way. He's not unsympathetic to what we face. He knows every temptation we will face. Fourthly, he knows our sorrows. Isaiah chapter 53 Verse 3 says prophetically, this is hundreds of years before the cross, hundreds of years before the incarnation, the prophet Isaiah writes about this suffering servant who is Jesus, that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus knows sorrows. He knows our sorrows. And then... And this is, again, stunning. It's just, we're just, we find ourselves just caught up in this beautiful mystery of the Trinity. Fifthly, he knows us as he and the Father know one another. Look again at verse 15 of our text. He says in verse 14, I know my own and my own know me. And verse 15 says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. So he's saying the same way. That he and the Father know each other is the same way that he knows us and we know him. Now, friends, that is worth meditation. That is a stunning thought. Let's just do a little application before we move on to the, to the final point. Is it just, I think what, what's going on here, what I want us to see, is that knowing Christ is life. Knowing Christ is life. It's not just the pathway to eternal life. It actually is life. And it's it's now, it's here. To know Christ is to live. Jesus says this again in John chapter 17, verse 3, the high priestly prayer, just one verse after we read earlier. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ Christ whom you have sent. So Jesus is saying to know me is to to have this is eternal life. Now what's going on there? I think at least two things. First is 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 that it means that if you know the Lord, if you know Jesus, that like that is that's sufficient. And and this is important for us in kind of an age of 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 insecurity and the fear of man and wondering what everybody thinks. I want, to, I want to take you to Romans. Go to Romans chapter 14. We'll have it on the screen, but flip over to Romans chapter 14. I want to read to you a few verses that I've been personally 
meditating on for a, a few weeks in my own heart and my own insecurities and my own fears. And I want to I draw a, a principle out of what I think is going on in Romans 14 that I hope you'll see and applies to what I think Jesus is saying here about knowing the Lord and that's life and that's enough. So by way of explanation, Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about Christians. He's wanting to encourage Christians not to judge one another about secondary or disputable matters or matters of conscience, where one Christian might think that it's not okay to eat this particular food for various reasons, and they are judging other people who might have a weaker conscience in that. And it's a, it's a whole sort of section where basically Paul is arguing for unity in the church and unity in Christ, and he's saying, look, you're going to have your convictions. You're going to believe strongly about things and believe strongly about them, that, but don't, don't judge one another and don't break fellowship with one another over these secondary matters, which is clearly is a very important teaching and something that we could think deeply about, but we won't today. But here's the principle I want to draw out is that notice... Notice the, the direction, notice the grounding of how Paul wants to settle this sort of insecurity, this sort of horizontal disposition of people who are worried about how they're coming across or they're worried about their brother or sister, what they're doing. It's just everybody's sort of fighting, biting each other, fussing at each other, disagreeing about secondary matters. Notice the trajectory that Paul wants to put them on. He says in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, he says, one person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And that was, I think, hinting at the dispute over the Sabbath and, and the Lord's day in the New Testament, what, which, which should we do? And Paul's basically saying that's not important anymore in the New Covenant. You're, everybody's going to have their own convictions on that. Each one, look at the second half of verse 5, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Listen to this now, verse 7 and 8. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live... We live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. What point is Paul making and what am I trying to draw out of Romans 14 that would apply to this glorious truth that he knows his sheep and we know him and knowing Jesus is eternal life. Here's the point that I want to make and maybe it's a personal point and maybe I'm about to do self-therapy in front of all of you. I'm sorry if that's the case, but I hope it helps some of you. We live in such an age of insecurity because we are so worried about what everybody else thinks. Does this person like me? Am I approved by them? We're just, it's this age of insecurity. And Paul's point here is, is, I think, getting at, no, listen, have your convictions. And don't be so consumed with what everybody else thinks of you because you're the Lord's. 
the most important knowing, the most important opinion, the most important conviction is who you are before the Lord. That's Paul's point. And so then take that and put it in the middle of verse 14. That's of our main text, John 10, that Jesus knows his sheep and being known by Jesus and knowing him needs to be, must be enough for the follower of Christ. If it isn't, we will be run ragged by trying to make a world happy that will never be made happy. Or we will drive ourselves nuts because people aren't doing what we think they should do. And we will die a spiritual death of a thousand relational cuts because we're so mad that we don't get the respect or they don't give the respect or whatever. And Paul here is saying, and I think Jesus is saying, no, no, no. These things have their relative importance. Relationships are important. There's some hard things we got to work out. But you're the Lord's. Do you know him? Is he enough? Is, is your conviction before the Lord, is your personal relationship, is your, is your sonship, your daughtership, your redemption, the forgiveness of your sins, the promise of eternity, is your relationship with the Lord, is that enough for you? And it must be for the Christian. That's life, is knowing Jesus and being known by him. What a privilege. And friends, this is such a spiritual battle. Because I, I can see, right now, I, 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 mean, I don't know if you can see it clearly, but what I'm preaching on, I can see clearly in my own heart. I hope you can see it too. But you know what? Come three o'clock this afternoon, when something stresses me out, I will forget this like a New York minute. And this, this, this spiritual discipline of resetting yourself on being the Lord's, like you're the Lord's and he's yours and you are his, knowing that resetting yourself on that is a daily spiritual discipline. Maybe it's an hourly spiritual discipline. And Jesus is a good shepherd worthy of being followed because of the unsearchable riches and peace and just settledness that comes with knowing him and being known by him. That, that frees me from a thousand false idols. I mean, I love you. On some level, I care deeply about what you think of me. I care about the fruitfulness and reputation of this church. I do. I care deeply about it. But it pales in comparison to to knowing who I am in Christ. And, and that's, that's ground zero for the Christian life, knowing who you are known by him and you knowing him. That is the daily reset of the Christian soul, to know the shepherd. Well, thirdly and finally, he is a shepherd worthy of following because he has one flock and he's always adding to it. Look at verse 16 again of our text. He has one flock and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, what's going on there? I think Jesus is speaking primarily, exclusively, to a Jewish audience at this time. And he came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so the the clear implication of this is that the gospel, the good news, is not just for Jesus' ethnic people, the Jews, but it is for all peoples from every tribe and tongue. He has come not just for Israel, but for all nations, for whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord. This has several implications for us. I have nine of them. Don't be nervous. I'm going to fly through them. One, it means that his promises are true. All the way back in the first book of the Bible in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, this promise to Abraham, he says, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, and I'm going to make a seed. I'm going to make a great nation. That becomes Israel. Israel ultimately is Christ. And he says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's a reference to Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. The gospel is for everybody, Jew and Gentile. Two, It's why we are sent on the Great Commission. We are part of Jesus' means by which he is always, even now, adding to his flock. We, a local church like Crosspoint, are part of this. We just this morning prayed for a missionary couple that has been sent out from this church. We give to missions organizations. We partner with people around the world. We partner with people in this city who are doing wonderful gospel work because we are part of the great commission that Jesus has sent out to do this. He adds to his flock by people like us. Three, it's why, related, it's why we send missionaries. Jesus doesn't just magically wave a wand in heaven and just make people Christians. He fastens himself to the necessity of gospel work, preaching, and sharing. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So we send missionaries. And by the way, let me just pause there and say, isn't that beautiful how we see that truth of the necessity of sharing of the gospel, the necessity of people sharing the gospel with people that haven't heard it with the definitiveness of Jesus' work on the cross? He has a people that will come to him, but they will not come to him unless the gospel goes to them. Put those two things together. Fourthly, it's why we plant new churches and we want to plant new churches and revitalize and help existing ones. Praise God, three years ago, this, or I guess now four years ago, no, three years ago, we sent out a, a group of people, about 80 members from Cross Point, to plant Midtree Church. They're doing wonderfully. They're almost done with building their building. Praise God for that. We want to plant new churches, but we also want to help revitalize existing ones. We don't want to just get bigger for our glory. The goal is souls for the glory of God. So that might mean sending young men from this staff and this church out to plant other churches again or to revitalize existing churches in our city. 
Fifth, it's why we keep sharing the gospel with that unbelieving friend or family. Jesus is adding to his flock one by one. He knows them by name. So don't grow weary in well-doing. You're sharing the gospel with that rebellious team, that spouse that's far away. Keep putting the good news of Jesus in front of that person because you never know what the Lord may do. It's why we put sixth. It's why we put such an, I know you want to make sure we're getting to the end of the list, sixth. It's why we put such an emphasis on children and youth ministry. And we haven't always handled this well. I know some of you are frustrated with the way we get up here and say, we need you to work in children. I get all that. Praise God, we had a training of new members that are going through and helping us with serving in children's ministry. We ask that members serve once every five weeks in children's ministry. We're getting better at that. But we value children's ministry and youth ministry, which are teenagers, middle school and high school, meet here on Sunday night, led by Tyler Kirkpatrick, one of our pastors who oversees youth ministry, because we believe that young people need to hear the gospel too. Now, I want to say this, a word about families who have a conviction about keeping their young children in service. I think we think that's wonderful. So as we get up here and we plead for people to work in children's ministry, we're not saying that we don't love it when children are in here or that you may have a conviction that you feel like your child should be in here because you're shepherding them and they're old enough to hear. We think that's a wonderful thing. But you, I want you to realize that not every family, especially young families, families that visit, families that may be very new in the faith, they may just not be there yet in maturity and ability to sort of shepherd their children like that. And so one of the great privileges we have as a church is to actually be part, the means of how Jesus adds to his flock. Think about that. Jesus had some, (laughs) praise God for this. Jesus had some children that would come to Crosspoint in mind when he said, there are other sheep that I must go get. And the means by which the great shepherd gets them into his pasture is through local churches, members of Crosspoint, being people who share the gospel, teach, put up with, sacrifice themselves one Sunday out of every five weeks or so to share the gospel with a child, and God uses that to awaken their heart and draw them into the flock of God. How glorious is that? That's why we do that. It's why we preach through the Word. Seventh. Seventh reason here is why we preach through the Word, because we believe that the Word does the work. Yes, we need to do the work of rightly dividing it and explaining it well. But we are not, listen to this, the style, the philosophy of ministry at Crosspoint. Now, we don't want to be intentionally boring, but we are not trying to wow ourselves with an experience every week. Okay, let me just give you a tip. I'm a grandpa now. I can officially take on the status of being a grumpy old man. Let me just give you a tip. Okay, if, if you're perusing a church website and you're maybe moving from here or maybe after today you're never coming back and you're looking for another church and that church talks a lot about, about a worship experience And it's real dark, and there's a bunch of cool, hip people, and just all that's friends. I think their intentions are likely good, 
But the, the, the philosophy of ministry of churches like that, I think, is askew. It's off. It puts the emphasis on ginning up an emotional experience. And I am not against affections being stirred. But we don't want affections being stirred by the environment primarily. We want the affections of the heart to be stirred by the right, passionate, clear teaching and preaching of the Word of God. Churches may attract crowds when they do that, but they are much less likely to make mature disciples when they do that. Real sheep. And so we think part of our ministry is adding to the flock more biblically, uh, in a clearer way, rightly preaching through the Word. Eighth, it's why we practice intentional membership and have a class that goes through what we believe and make sure that you understand. And it's why we, before we allow people to join the church, that we meet with each individual prospective member to ensure that they understand the gospel and to ensure that they are trusting in Christ. Why do we do this? Not because we want to be stingy at all, but because we don't want to give people false assurance that they're actually a sheep when they may still be a goat because nobody has sat down with them and talked to them about what it means to believe in Jesus and trust in Him. And so we want to be very intentional about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and in the local church. It makes me think of that old Scottish pastor, William Still, and he said that he, he talked about the ministry of a church and he said, he said that the pastor and a church is not to be an entertainer of goats. <laughs> he said, let goats entertain goats and let them do it out in goat land. He says, you will certainly not turn goats into sheep by pandering to their goatishness. And he says, do we really believe that the word of God by his spirit changes as well as maddens men? If we do, to be true pastors, feeders of sheep, we must be men of the word of God. And part of that is us meeting with people, having an intentional process, and making sure that they understand the gospel. And then finally, the ninth reason of him adding to his flock why we do what we do is because we preach the gospel every Sunday. Lord willing, I hope that in every sermon that I or any of the other pastors preach is that you will see woven into that text, even if it's not explicitly about Jesus' work on the cross or redemption, that woven into that, the ground of it, the, 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 the indicative, the, the foundation of every sermon is the good news of the gospel. All of this is possible only because of what Jesus has done. He laid down his life. He bore the sin for his sheep. God poured out the wrath that should have been ours on the cross. Jesus bared it. He extinguished it. He removed it. And he rose again. He took his life back up again. And now the great shepherd has a sheep. He has a flock that he is adding to. And he is calling. And every time the gospel is preached, here's what the Holy Spirit does. It takes that gospel and it calls goats. And it makes them sheep. The shepherd calls the sheep 
as the people hear about what the shepherd has done. That's how he calls. John, when he was praying, in the, John fought in the call to worship, but he alluded to it. He made me think of that old beautiful hymn. Beautiful, sweet hymn that many of us grew up singing softly and tenderly. Jesus is calling, calling for you and me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home. You who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. It's hard to read it and not sing it. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? The shepherd calls the sheep through the preaching of the gospel, and people believe. God gives them a heart to believe, eyes to see. He gives them the regenerating new heart, and he gives them the gift of faith, and they trust in Jesus, and it happens all the time. Praise God. And maybe he's calling you right now. Softly and tenderly, the shepherd is calling. He's calling for you and for me. If that's you, turn away from trusting in yourself. Put your hope in the shepherd who laid down his life for you if you will believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being our good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for all of the sheep that the Father has given him. You lose none of your little ones. Thank you for being a good shepherd that knows us better than we know ourselves. And thank you for being a good shepherd that even now, still adding to your flock, Lord, add more to your flock today through the preaching of your word. May any friends that came into this room unbelieving, may they turn from trusting in themselves and may they simply cry out and say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. I put my hope in you, the only good shepherd. Lord, would you do that now? And for those of us that have been part of your flock and your pasture for a long time, may you stir our love for the good shepherd so that we might follow him more faithfully, that we might graze in his pastures more passionately, and that we might be used by him in his mission. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.